using the pew bible of course if you're using an electronic device then you don't need to worry about that so as I always encourage everyone to do whether you're listening online or live here always open your bibles please when people are teaching from the bible or standing before you saying that they're teaching from the bible we must be like the Bereans in the book of Acts who tested even people like the apostle Paul examined what they were saying to see that the things were that were being said were really from the word and lined up with the rest of scripture so I encourage you to turn to John chapter 1 at this time and I'll be reading the first 18 verses John chapter 1 verse 1 through 18 I'm reading from the ESV in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was in the beginning with God all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it there was a man sent from God whose name was John he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him he was not the light but he came to bear witness about the light the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world he was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him he came to his own and his own people did not receive him but to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth John bore witness about him and cried out this was he of whom I said he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ no one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's side he has made him known <clears throat> This is the word of the living God. May God add a blessing to the reading and the hearing and the preaching of his word now. Amen. There are many valuable points that John makes in these 18 verses. With most, most texts in the Bible, it's not as simple as finding one main point. Although... 
if you're studying and, and teaching the Bible, you can find a main point in any passage. But often there are many major points in every text. There's only a few that I want to look at this week. And I think these are probably the sort of highest points that John is seeking to make in this first chapter. And here they are. Three points. We'll see how we get through them. The first one is that Jesus is truly God. Secondly, Jesus is truly man. Third, and last but not least, Jesus is our substitute and our example. So let's look at this first point. And again, when, when we look at the Gospel of John, taking these 18 verses in the context of the whole Gospel, if you go to John chapter 20, verse 31, John makes it known at the end of this Gospel, his main point for writing, which is really the main point of the whole New Testament and the entire Bible. And John says, I write these things so that you would believe in the name of the Son of God and that in believing you would have life. He's saying everything I've written, this entire account of the history of this person named Jesus, this is my point, this is my goal, that you would have eternal life in His name. And it is essential that we take time to read through the Gospels as Christians, even if we've read them ten times, read them ten more times. And spend time meditating and praying through what you're reading. There are many people who say Jesus, but are talking about someone different than the true Jesus. And we, we recently crossed through Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus himself said it first. Many will say, Lord, Lord. And he will tell them in the last day, I, I never knew you. So there are people with genuine confidence in themselves right now thinking that they know and worship Jesus. Yet they don't. It is very important, therefore, especially, I would say, especially in a society like the one we are blessed to live in, where we have, many of us, grown up hearing about the things of God. It can almost become second nature. You find yourself answering questions or saying the end of verses before you hear them finish read, being read. And you know what I'm saying. And that can almost cause a sort of mental sloth in really allowing ourselves to focus and dig in and try to treasure the truths that we know perhaps very well. So let's look at these three points maybe in a fresh way today. First of all, look again at the first three verses. Jesus is truly God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. It's important to pay attention to the very first few words in the beginning. You notice there the parallel between John 1 and Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what John is making clear by using the same kind of language is 
I have learned something. John is saying in a sense, I know something more than the people of God did. I don't know something contradictory, but I have learned something deeper about this God who created the heavens and the earth. And you notice here, he uses, he uses words like he and him, describing that this is not some sort of impersonal force, but an actual personal being. Someone that's relatable. Not something at work, but someone. And he uses this phrase, the word. See that there over and over in verse 14, which we'll get to, the word became flesh. This phrase, the word, which in the Greek is logos, L-O-G-O-S, was basically a, a phrase that was often used by the Greeks to refer to a sort of impersonal force. The way that the Greeks and the Gentiles and many other people would try to understand how everything works in the world. Not that they believed that there was one creator God, but they tried to describe as best as they could that there are these forces that are holding things together, why the seas stop at a certain point, why the sun goes down around a certain time and rises again, why nature and why things work the way they do. And the way that they would describe all of that was with this impersonal, un untouchable thing called the Word. So John is making use of that to grab their attention. But the Word has another use that we'll get to shortly. All throughout the Old Testament, and the Word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, and the Word of the Lord came to Isaiah, etc. But notice what John tells us about this Word in verse 1 and in verse 3. He was present with God and all things are made through him. In other words, just like God in Genesis 1, this word was uncreated, is uncreated. For a person to create something, they must exist before what they create. That makes sense, does it not? It's a basic logical step of um, cause and action or cause and effect, if you will. The Creator must come before whatever He creates. And John is, is piling these truths together to emphasize that there is one true God, but then there is this Word through whom all things were made that Himself is God. You see, the, the, it's text like this and the rest of the New Testament at large that create this doctrine that we as Christians believe about the one true God called the Trinity. John here is showing us at least two persons in the first few verses. He's showing us at least two persons in the one true God, the Father and the Son. The Word was with God. We believe as Christians that there's one true God, one being. He's one in His being, one in His essence and His nature, but He's three in persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uncreated. And that there's also an or order of how things work within that Trinitarian being. In this passage, John is, is focusing on this to help us begin to understand something 
that was not understood for thousands of years. Furthermore, he's, he's showing us the nature of God and the nature of this Word who became flesh. He is infinite and we are finite. That's also why we can't fully understand this truth. But we need to make a distinction between something that's mysterious and hard to understand and a contradiction. It would be a contradiction to say, for example, there's one, there's one God who is one being and three beings. Or has one nature and three different natures. That would be a contradiction. Or to say that there's one God who is one person and three persons. But that is not what Scripture teaches us. The word Trinity does not exist in the Scripture, but Scripture is very clear. God the Father is God. God the Son, all throughout His life, who accepted worship, through whom all things were made, and at the end of His life commands us to go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is teaching us that God is one in His being and three in His persons. And so it's not a contradiction to believe this, this doctrine of the Trinity. And furthermore, it is an essential requirement. If a person sees these truths coming out of the pages of Scripture and says, No, I reject that. You, you need to understand something. You're not rejecting an idea. You're rejecting a person. You're rejecting Christ. You're rejecting the only hope of salvation. To say that God is a trinity is not the gospel. But it is one of those truths that the church stands on. We will never fully understand it. Even in glory, when we're perfect in our, in our minds, God will still be infinite and we will still be finite. And we will praise Him because of who He is, regardless of not having a full understanding and wrapping our ar arms around this truth. Amen? Amen. And this is why we worship God. Because this amazing triune God has worked in history and in time to save a people for Himself. And He's done it through His one and only Son. So John is showing us that Christ was there with God, with the Father. And He is the one through whom all things were made. So when you read Genesis 1.26, for example, when you see these words in Genesis 1.26, think about it. Let us, let us make man in our likeness, in our image, in our likeness. Us, our, these are words used to speak of more than one person. And so this is the Father, this is how we can understand it. The Father is giving instruction to the Son through whom all things are made. And the Son is carrying out this work of creation. But I think John is using this creation language not just because he wants to show Christ's divinity and involvement in this first creation, but he wants us to see Jesus' involvement in a second kind of creation. That he's Lord of a first creation and a second creation that starts for each individual who believes with what we call the new birth. As we, we sing in the, the Christmas hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, one of the lines says, Born to save the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. 
And so there's a new creation that comes in this amazing person of Jesus Christ. John, again, is speaking to the two audiences I was referencing in the beginning. He had a Jewish audience, but it's almost like where you see Matthew in his gospel focusing on, on the Jewish audience primarily. John is focusing on everyone else. People who maybe weren't familiar with the Bible. But also, again, for the Jews, this title, the Word, is essential. The Word of the Lord came to the prophets and came from the prophets to the people. God would speak to His people throughout the ages through these chosen instruments of revelation. And they would then take the Word of the Lord to the people so that the people could hear the mind of God the heart of God. And when we see themes like light and darkness in this chapter in John chapter 1, and all throughout John's writings, in fact, and when we think of themes like light and darkness at Christmas time, this is actually what Jesus came to fulfill in and of Himself. As Isaiah says in one of his prophecies, that the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light And this light is in Christ Himself. He has come to bring light to this dark world. The author of Hebrews says this in in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things through whom also He created the world. You can read Colossians 1.16 at another time today. And many other passages we could talk about. And we probably will tonight. I encourage you to come out for the Bible study. The service and Bible study in 7 this evening. But all of these truths are telling us about this Jesus who we need to believe in about the glory of this Jesus through whom all things are made. That He is the last prophet. That He is the final priest. And that He is indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Many people today struggle with this concept of an uncreated being. A God who all by Himself created everything. And then in some mysterious way, became part of His creation. And so what we do, often not realizing it, but what we do is we try to create our own descriptions. Instead of listening to the author of life and what he says, we try to make up in our minds something that perhaps will fit on paper mathematically. And we create ideas. For example, the idea that there is a sovereign God who oversees all things doesn't really feel comfortable. And for the Greeks who had this idea of the word, the logos, that was an impersonal force or a bunch of forces, or as many of us who watch Marvel perhaps think a bunch of gods, one's over, you know, controlling the water and one's controlling the heavens and lightning. And you have Thor, right? We all know who Thor is. 
in the movies. He's not real. Never was. There's one God who's in control of all things. And the reason that those ideas become comfortable in our minds is because they don't hold real power in the conscience and the soul of mankind. As our minds begin to hear the words of Scripture and recognize the truth of it in our hearts, we realize we need to submit ourselves to this God. This is a God who is compassionate, but He also commands our obedience, our loyalty to Him above all other gods. John is saying here, listen, to the Jews and to the non-Jews, the Word of God is here. The one through whom all things has been made and the one who sustains all things by his own powerful word. Not just a representative. When we talk about Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us, we're not talking about someone who came to represent God in the way that Moses and the other prophets did. We're talking about God himself with us. That is grace. And so, as we think about this, John again is saying, our sovereign Lord who created and sustains us, He has come to live amongst us, which brings us to the second point. Jesus is truly man. Look with me again at at verse 14. Next week I hope to get into some of the other verses. It's a big jump. From verse 3 to verse 14. Don't worry. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. This is again. This is the, the doctrine of the incarnation. This is another foundational truth like the trinity. This is what it means to to be a Christian. That we believe that God the Son never ceased to be who He was in His divine nature. But mysteriously and amazingly took upon Himself a second nature. A truly human nature. So that now for all of eternity, Jesus Christ exists as truly God and truly man. In one person. I really want us to think about this. If you reject this. Understand. You are rejecting salvation. There is not an ounce of forgiveness of sin. For those who reject the truth of Christ. This is a very important truth. God had to become one of us. Without ceasing to be who he was. This is why the birth of Christ was done through a virgin. But we don't just praise God for the birth. Remember, life begins in the womb. The Holy Spirit, the, the, the Gospels tell us, He overshadowed the womb of Mary. There was no intercourse, as false teachers say, and entire false movements. This was a, a mysterious, supernatural for lack of a better term, insemination. The virgin became with a child. 
she conceived in her womb by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Son of God. And he had to become human to accomplish what he came to accomplish for humans. That is the logical step, one to the next step. Christ could not accomplish a salvation for humanity without himself becoming one of us. As one theologian puts it, in the 5th century, the Council of Chalcedon, which happened around 451 AD, affirmed that Jesus was truly man and truly God. Jesus' two natures, human and divine, were said to be without mixture, confusion, separation, or division. And again, why is this so important? For us to think about and to believe and to grow deeper in our knowledge and our love of. Because Jesus could not be a substitute in our place if he was not who we are. But the reason this is also challenging to think about is because the only way we understand ourselves when we look in the mirror and we look at the news is in light of the fact that for, let's just say, thousands of years the human race has only been made up of sinners in other words we have only ever since Adam and Eve sinned the first two people that were made by God ever since they sinned the nature of humanity has existed with sin and corruption and so we look at Christ in his life walking through the Gospels in his moral perfection and it's confusing But we have to remember that God created Adam and Eve sinless, perfect, without any moral or ethical corruption. They had no no wrong thoughts, let alone actions. They had no wrong feelings until that moment they became sinners. And from then on out, we are all the byproduct. We're born in sin and shaped in iniquity and we cannot set ourselves free. So don't waste time thinking about Bob Marley's song because you can't emancipate yourself from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our mind. No, none but ourselves can get further entrapped in our own problems. But there is one who came to free the minds and the hearts of people in darkness. Jesus had to come to be a substitute, not just in his death. The heart of the gospel is about substitution, but not just about substitutionary atonement on the cross. He had to to live as our substitute to achieve a righteousness that we cannot. I, I mean, words fail to properly describe this, and I probably repeated many of these things by now in the same way. But it, it, it is something that we should never get tired of hearing. That God so loved the world that He sent Jesus Amen. to be born in my place, to, to live as a sinless man, fighting against the temptations. And it wasn't just one temptation like with Adam. A world filled with temptation and pressures. Jesus also, because of sin, 
while he didn't have any sinful corruption, he felt the effects of it. He was tired. He was hungry. He probably got sick. Don't, don't overemphasize his perfection. His perfection had to do with his spiritual righteousness. But even with all of those extra pressures, he maintained his perfection, his trust in God where Adam failed. Adam failed to take God at his word and chose to believe the lie of the devil. Christ maintained a focus and a trust in the Father. Not because he needed to, but because of love. Of love for any who will look to him. This is why Jesus had to truly become human. And again, people who probably, because of some prideful intellect, want to say, I've got this thing all figured out, they make up lies and stories and probably receive evil revelations from fallen angels to start entire, entire movements. Won't call the names, but anyone who is teaching or believing that Jesus is a part of his creation. In other words, that not that he has a divine nature, but that he is a created being first and foremost. That's a heretic. That's a lie. There is no hope of forgiveness and eternal life in those truths. But this amazing mystery that Jesus is fully God and fully man yet without sin is what Christmas is supposed to proclaim. That God became one of us to win us to himself, to ultimately go to the cross. That's why the Son came. If Jesus was not fully God, think about this, if he was not fully divine, he could not have received on Calvary's cross the divine wrath of God. He could not have absorbed that and risen again. He could not have handled that. But if Jesus was not fully man, yet without sin, he could not stand in our place receiving that justice, receiving that judgment as a human being. Again, we needed him to be one of us. I like the way the late Dr. R.C. Sproul Sr. puts it. Speaking of the the parable, parable of the, the prodigal son, he says, He took our filthy rags and gave us his righteous robe. Remember that prodigal son's story, the lost son in Luke 15? Jesus teaches a parable about, not about reparations. I heard someone teaching that recently. Not about anything like that. It's a parable about repentance. There's a lost coin. There's a lost sheep and there's a lost son. And in each of them, Jesus says, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 people who think they don't need to, basically. And when the son comes back, who's been basically living and eating pig's food, that's how deep he's gone in his sin and his lack of love for the father. When he comes back, to the father. He says, he's got this plan laid out. Well, I'm going to say to my father, I'm not worthy to be your son, but I'll work as one of your hired workers. But before he can open his mouth, the father runs to him 
and says, come in, we're going to have a feast for you. And he goes and says, kill the fattened calf. Get the best calf and we're having a feast. We're throwing a party. Because this son of mine who was lost, who was essentially dead, is now come back. And he said, go and get the best robe. The best robe and clothe him in it. That's what the gospel is all about. Except in the gospel, Jesus has to be clothed in our sin and treated on that cross in the realm that our eyes could not see. Judged by the Father as if He had committed all our sins. I want you to think about that. Especially those of us who are maybe a bit younger. Especially those of you who are not yet married. Those of you who are still trying to decide what you want to spend the rest of your life doing. Maybe those of you who are in school. We don't understand how harmful simple things that we allow to come into our mind can be. And you will spend your life looking backwards in regret for things that you do as a young man or a young woman. Be very careful. But don't be crushed by that. And those of us who are older who who wish we hadn't done certain things for years upon years, remember this. Jesus stood in our place on the cross. If we're trusting in Christ, we are trusting that He has paid it all. As He said, it is finished on the cross. And what He meant was, I have paid the price, I have taken the punishment for all the sins you have committed, past, present, and future, if you're looking to me in faith. Is that not good news? And He can do that. Because He's truly God, and He's truly man. And as Paul puts it in Romans 5.19, As by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That is not just good news. That's great news. And Jesus came to, to be our substitute. That's why He took on flesh. Which brings me to the last, the last point. He's our substitute and our example. Sometimes we look at Jesus and we almost use Him. We want to be Jesus-like. We want to be Christ-like. He's our example. That's what the Gospel is about. This is what some of us perhaps think sometimes. That Jesus came to be our example so that we can follow Him and by doing so, we can make the world and our lives a better place. No, the Gospel is not about what we can do even following Him well. The Gospel is about what He has done. And therefore, in trusting Him, He does things through us in line with that. Great works. He transforms us. Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And Paul is not just focused on the individual being changed there. He's saying, if you believe in Christ, if you come to this Christ, you will not only receive a new heart, a new life, but you will be brought into covenant communion with people who are part of a new creation 
realm. A new covenant family. Christmas, we often talk about family a lot. It's a time when we, most of us, maybe all of us, love getting together with our families. But maybe someone listening doesn't feel that way. Maybe someone listening doesn't have the same blessing of being in a loving family that some of us do. This is also part of what the gospel produces. God has made an everlasting covenant family that he's gradually working in until one day in eternity we stand perfected. And that can be felt even now in time. That we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And this even supersedes blood family. You know, think of, think of John the Baptist Jesus' first cousin. All he's doing is, is, I just want to be a witness to this one who's come. I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes, you know, you... Well, I guess I was the black sheep at that point in my family, but you, you have a, a... You know, maybe you have a cousin who you think, I wouldn't be pointing anyone to him, you know, or her. Go, behold my cousin. Maybe you think, listen, I wasn't born cousins with this person, but... It's just the way it is. I was born into this family. That's not how we should think about ourselves as Christians. Being a Christian in the family of God, which is known as the church, beloved, supersedes our blood families. You and I are brothers and sisters in Christ. And again, to some of the younger generation... Maybe you struggle with this, but this is your family. We are the family of God by faith in Christ. Amen. And that is something priceless. Because it, it, it came at the price of the precious blood of Christ. And so Jesus is truly God. He's truly man. And He's our substitute and our example in all that He has done. In His birth and in his life and in his death and resurrection and by the way when you read the beginning of the gospel of Matthew if you think about that first chapter we went through a while ago where the angel appears to Joseph and says the the child in Mary's womb is from the Holy Spirit you are to marry her and you are to call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I want you to see something. Jesus sanctifies all of human life. Jesus puts a premium of value on all of human life. Starting where? In the womb. This is why as Christians, it is absolutely imperative that we do the same thing. We have some big changes in the world around us, and let's be level-headed about this, I, I, in my opinion. Before 2024 comes, some of the big campaigns that will take place on this island will include things and ideas and themes 
that do not honor life in the womb. Jesus is teaching us from his very conception that we are to put a premium on life in the womb. And you notice how the devil works in the opposite way? Remember that guy named Herod who tried to kill Jesus? Herod said, you know what? I want this future potential king dead so much. Just kill everyone from two years and under and tried to kill him and killed thousands of innocent human beings in the womb fulfilling the prophecy that there will be much weeping coming out of that place, Bethlehem thousands of years before that was a prophecy I think it was through the prophet Micah I've forgotten now you can check that and tell me later but there's many truths that come out of texts like this and, and surrounding the person of Christ that we need to think carefully about as a Christian church. And Jesus has come to be our substitute and our example. If you jump down in John chapter 1, just let your eyes run down to verse 29. You'll see the words, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, behold this Lamb who you couldn't pick from your own pastors. And like the old covenant, they had the sacrificial system. Here's one that God sent to deal with sin and to properly pay the penalty and atone for sin for people all over the world who will believe in him. John makes this point very clear. And if we if we look back to verses 4 and 5 in this chapter, we see Jesus doing something through his work again that is an example for us. It says that there's light in him. He shines light into the darkness. The darkness is trying to overcome it, but it cannot. Some translations say the darkness could not comprehend this light. Both of these things are, are saying, the same, saying the same thing in different ways. But essentially this has to do with the darkness that comes from sin. Sin has darkened our understanding of who God is. And we cannot have light from anywhere apart from this person. And now from this word from God. In His word, the Bible. Jesus shows us that throughout our lives, and like Him from conception, Jesus is showing us that throughout our lives we are to be shining light in the darkness. We have become children of the kingdom of light. And there's really only two kingdoms in this world, and we'll get more into this next week. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And this has to do with Revelation. Look again at verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The one and only God, or the only begotten Son, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. This has been the greatest separation in human history. When God made Adam and Eve, they used to walk with Him in the garden, in the cool of the garden. 
But sin has separated us from God. We cannot even look upon Him. Moses begged God when he received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. He begged Him to let Him see Him. And God said, no, I'll let you see a little portion as I walk by of the back. But no man can truly look at me and live. Isaiah catches a vision in, in Isaiah 6 of the seraphim flying back and forth. And he says, after I saw this vision, I was undone. In other words, it was like my joints fell apart. That's what happened to me, seeing this glorious God. But Jesus, in His grace and mercy, took upon our nature to reveal God to us through His teaching, through His living. And as part of Jesus' redemptive work, He reveals God to the world. And now He calls us as the church. Every one of us. Not just some, but all who believe. All who are children of God. And if you look back to those verses uh, 11 through 13, notice what it says. Who are the children of God? Does it say everyone is the children of God? No. Those who receive Him, who believe in His name, those are the children of God. And so those who have become God's children by the grace of this revealing light of Christ, we are called to simply open our mouths and tell the world, friend, let me tell you about the real Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ and about His virgin birth. Let me tell you why He came. Let me show you someone who can know all about you and still go to Calvary's cross and suffer and die for you, for your sins, but also rise victorious on the third day, giving you the greatest hope that you can ever find. Let me tell you about Jesus and shine some light into a darkness that you might not even realize that we live in. See, that this is what we are called to be, church. Let your light so shine, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, so that people will see your good works and also hear the truth about Christ because faith comes through hearing and believe and, and give glory to the Father in heaven. And we can have confidence as we do this, not because we know that the results will always be what we hope for. That's always in God's hands. But because we know that God's word will never return void. If we simply say, you know what, you know, cousin, brother, sister, parent, child, it's Christmas time. And let's just take a moment to think about why Jesus came. You don't have to have a sermon. You don't have to have a lesson. You just have to think about these truths and do what Mary did. Treasure these things in your heart and open our mouths and leave the rest to God. And when we do that, even if a person doesn't give their life to God, we have fulfilled God's purpose in that action. 
The gospel will always do what it's intended to do. And it's about divine accomplishment. That's what Christ came to do. He didn't come to give us divine hopeful possibilities. But actually to accomplish a mission. And if you think about the incarnation, this is how we as churches are to be. This is why we gather on Sunday, the day that He rose from the dead. This is why we gather together like this. It's, like, it's, it's almost like you could say that the body of Christ in local churches like this is incarnating every week. We're, we're gathering for the purpose of witnessing and bearing witness to this light and worshiping Christ for all He has done, for who He is. That's why we have to reach out like He reached out to us. So, as I come to a close, may this be a Christmas season and a time in our lives that we seek to know more about this Jesus, that we seek to know more about God and His, through His Word. And we see that in the book of Revelation, what really grants true believers the greatest joy throughout all of eternity. All the, the theme of all the different songs that people sing in Revelation is centered on what? It's centered on Jesus. It's centered on His divine accomplishment. It's all about the Lamb of God dealing with our sin. And you never get the sense that we'll get tired of that. So may we never as a church get tired of basking in this glorious truth. May we never get tired of knowing God and making Him known. And may this be a message that we carry to those around us who are in darkness. Even those of us who are in the light, we need to continually share this light, this life with each other because we live in a dark world and there is no other light outside of Christ. So may these things be the theme of our, our praises and gatherings like today and of our daily lives. May God help us to to do this and, and let us be prayerful that we would be faithful to live out these kinds of things and be about the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you have sent your only son To redeem a people that were not only ignorant.